Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. A massive car bomb in Northern Ireland has killed more than 20 people, including children. It exploded in a busy shopping street in Omer, County Tyrone. About 100 people have been injured. It's the worst bomb attack in 30 years of terrorism in the province. Colin Murphy, who was convicted of the OMA bombing but then acquitted on appeal, has died. The lifelong South Armagh Republican was later found liable in a civil court for the bombing. The OMA families finally have something to smile about. At last, after more than a decade, four men have been found responsible for the bombing. The civil case was brought against real IRA leader Michael McEvitt, as well as Liam Campbell, Colm Murphy and Seamus Daly, after the relatives became frustrated by the lack of criminal proceedings, which required a higher burden of proof. But the successful businessman had already signed over his assets to other people. Today, Mr Justice Morgan said on the balance of probabilities the men were involved in the bombing and should pay the six families involved £1.6 million. Getting the damages they are now owed by the men found responsible may not be all that easy. The real IRA bomb exploded in the county Tyrone town on the 15th of August 1998. It killed 29 people, including a woman pregnant with twins. Hundreds more were injured. I counted at least 15 bodies. That's dead. That's not counting the injured. They had to take the injured away on buses, vans, anything that we could get at the time. It's just incredible that could happen today. A day when a festival was to take part in this. What can you say about it? What can you say? It was the biggest single loss of life in 30 years of Northern Ireland's troubles when a 500-pound bomb exploded in this quiet market town in the west of Northern Ireland. The real IRA, a splinter group, said it was responsible. Michael Gallagher, whose son Aidan died in the bombing, has spoken of his sadness and disappointment that Colin Murphy died without facing full justice. I'm joined by our security correspondent, Alison Morris. Well, Alison, once again, you're very welcome to the Bell Tale. I suppose we have to start with the simple question, who was... Colin Murphy. Colin Murphy is a veteran Republican, I suppose a lifelong Republican, if you like. He was from Blakes in um, County Armagh, but spent most of his life living in Dundalk and around County County Lowes. Um, and he appears to have been a, a Republican from he was a very young boy. Um, in fact, from he was a actively so since he was a teenager. And most famously, I suppose, he was the first person to ever be convicted in relation to the Oma bomb, 
but that conviction was later overturned. Um, he was accused of supplying phones that were used by the, the bombers on the day of the, the Omar tragedy. Now, you have met Colin Murphy. I met Colin Murphy on several occasions. Um, the first occasion, it was very specific for a very specific reason. His son, Conan, who was just 23 at the time, had been arrested along with a guy called Barney McAvitt. Um, and they had been accused by the Garda of having a bomb-making factory in County Louth. Um Colin Murphy was, you know, he thought that Conan was only being targeted because he was his son and he wanted me to go and look at the alleged bomb-making factory. So it was quite surreal, obviously. You know you're going to come face-to-face with the, the, the man accused of involvement in the Oma bomb. And you don't know what to expect. But he was a wee small man. He was, he was, you know, much smaller than me. Um, just looked like a typical wee sort of country grandal. You know, ruddy face. Clearly spent a lot of time out, outdoors. Um, he was a contractor for most of his life, a building contractor and quite a successful one. I think he had quite a lot of land and county lives and businesses. But we got there and he pointed at this sort of crumbling wall, this very high wall, and pointed at this ladder and said, get over that. And I had... Obviously, being me, had arrived for this meeting with him in unsuitable footwear. So I had high heels on and I had to clamber over this very shaky ladder and over the other side and down into, I'm going to say, a, a cow shed. But I would like to quantify that I am from West Belfast, so I have never been in a cow shed before. But it looked to me like what I would describe as a cow shed. There was no side on it, but it was, you know, a farm a farm building. And this is where they alleged that the bomb making factory had been. So I am standing in this yard um, and then he started to tell me that that Conan had been making pot chain, that that's what he had been doing, that there was no explosives found. And there were no explosives found, you should say this. There were no explosives found. What had been found is a trailer that had like an advertising hoarding built around it um, and I think there were some canisters and the guard said that this was the component parts that they were going to use this trailer to make a bomb. Um, Conan had denied this at the time. He had been, uh, there was, the alleged had been roughed up in custody. They had to get medical treatment, the two of them, after the, they were arrested. So he started telling me this and then went on to tell me a story about how this shed, whatever it was, it was this outbuilding, had been used by the Provisional IRA during the decommissioning process. So decommissioning started around 2001, but wasn't completed. We had what we called, was it meaningful? Disposal of arms in 2005. He told me that while we know what happened around that time is that Michael McAvitt, who went on to form the Real IRA, he had been the quartermaster. A lot of the weapons in around that sort of South Armagh area were never handed over for decommissioning. He retained them back and then formed his own organisation. But what weapons were gathered up, um, Colin Murphy told me were taken to this the shed and then they were picked up. What happened during decommissioning was people were appointed by the decommissioning body, by General John Duchaslin, and they were given these certificates. I've actually seen one, and it was a certificate of immunity that meant if they were stopped in a car with a bootload full of guns, they wouldn't be arrested and would be waved on their way because they were officially part of the decommission process. And he said they were picked up from the shed and he actually showed me there was bits of wire and, and you know um, copper wire and stuff still lying around that had clearly been there for years that he said was, was part of the, the decommissioned stuff stuff that obviously wasn't worth lifting and had been left behind but it um, yeah it was, a, it was a surreal experience so you're as a journalist you're you're 
you know, you're face to face with this man, very disarming. Just as I said, look like a you know, a wee sort of country builder man. That's exactly what he looked like. And and so I, I asked him. I mean, it's the question that had to be asked. I mean, was he involved in the Oma bomb? And that was, I suppose, when he said, no, you know, he said it. What he actually said was, it was awful. It was tragic. And then he said, there's no question. It should never have happened. No one in their right mind would ever say any different. At that stage, he was he was 58. I would probably say he looked a bit older. But the interesting sort of wording of that answer is that he said it was tragic and it was terrible but didn't particularly answer the question that he was asked um, so you mean at, at that point then I went back to see him several times after that and asked him questions about various various other things some of which I could probably talk about now and some of which I'll probably never talk about but I mean the the interesting thing was he was amenable to speak even though he had refused to speak to journalists in the past um, I don't know why he'd, he decided that I was going to be the one that he was going to break that silence and speak to Just to look at his CV before we return to, to, the, to Oma uh, in 1972 he was imprisoned for possession of a weapon but escaped from the Curra uh, that's in Kildare. In 1976, he was given a three-year sentence for weapons uh, offences and convicted of membership of the Provisional IRA. In July 1983, he was arrested while attempting to buy M60 machine guns, believed to be for the INLA. Uh, he was sentenced to five years but served just two. Uh, he has been at various points a member of the Provisional IRA, the INLA, uh, the real IRA, it's been reported, and in later years, it's been reported that he was linked to the dissident group Ogley Naherdon. He certainly got around then. Uh, You know, he didn't seem to be... I mean, a lot of these organisations would not be very friendly to each other. Some of them would have been involved in feuds with each other. But he seems to have been available to a variety of groups, let let us say. It's unusual for someone to jump from one group to another. It's very unusual for someone to go from the professional IRA to the INLA. Whether he was ever officially a member of the INLA or whether he was acting as some sort of conduit and trying to gather arms for them, I'm not sure. But he was clearly um, involved with McEvitt's real IRA. He was... You know, those that South Armagh Brigade of the Provisional IRA were a very tight unit. They didn't particularly deal very well with the the rest of the the leadership of the IRA. They believed that they were infiltrated by informers and if they kept themselves to themselves, that they would survive that way. And by and large, they did. Not that many of them ever went to the prison and yet the majority of the large bombs that went off, things like Canary Wharf, all originated from South Armagh. That was where the bomb makers lived um, in around that sort of Jonesboro area um, <clears throat> and so he was very much of that that sort of world if you know what I mean so he would have been really good friends with um, with people like Mickey McEvitt um, and that was where his loyalties would have, I would have believed was where his loyalties and allegiances went. And so, therefore, it was probably unsurprising that then, after the Good Friday Agreement and the ceasefires, that he fell into that dissident Republican world because the real IRA, when it first began, it really was based in and around those big characters in South Armagh, those people who would have been known um, as very senior members of, of the IRA. And, you know, I suppose if anyone's ever read... 
banned a country, um, they'll know that that they kept themselves formed that way for a reason. They were a band that were united by their geography and by their past and by their families and they had ties going back generations and generations and knew each other and they liked to keep keep it that way. So he was one of those people and would clearly have been a very experienced IRA man. I never have been told whether or not he joined the NLA or whether he was just gathering guns for them, but he was definitely then in the real IRA. And then in, in his later years, he was very firmly connected to Oglenahern. Um That would have been an organisation that when it first started was the biggest threat to peace, I suppose, in Northern Ireland. And they planted a number of bombs, very viable bombs, which dissonance up until that point after Oma and the shame that obviously came with Oma and those deaths at Oma. Um, we hadn't seen an awful lot of bombs coming out of that distant Republican world, but Oglenahern um, placed a car bomb in Palace Barracks in County Down. They placed a car bomb not too far from where you and I are sitting, one with the old policing board, which has now moved and the building next door used to be there. They put a car bomb there. There was a car bomb placed in the city centre. Um, they clearly had bomb-making capability and their bomb-making capability, to my understanding, would have been in around that, that South Armagh area because Seamus McGrann, who died in prison, would have been also a member of Oglenahern. And all the while he's a very successful businessman. He is indeed. He was a building merchant and he was a, a building contractor and he made a lot of money. He also owned the, the Emerald Bar in Dundalk. I think a lot of those businesses were all sold off to relatives or family members and you can understand why because when we get to the Omobom civil case it would have been in his best interest to offload assets just in case. But the um, I met him on another occasion, several occasions actually, in the Emerald Bar itself in Dundalk and funny, when I was there, you told me a story. There was a, a the killing of, of Kevin McGuigan, which is something I remember the killing of Jock Davis and Kevin McGuigan almost collapsed the Northern Ireland Assembly. Um, what happened was Jock Davison, very senior RA man, was shot dead in the, the markets area of South Belfast. And then it was believed that Kevin McGuigan was the gunman and Kevin McGuigan was later shot. But he was telling me when we were sitting in the Emerald Bar that this boy came in with a, a wee small bag with him and the sort of sweat lashing off him and said, I'm on the run. And he's like, who is anyone on the run? And, you know, whatever year it was at that time, like it was, I think it was the, the 2015, wasn't it, was killed. Um, he said that nobody had appeared on the run in, you know, decades. And he'd said, the police are looking at me, they think I'm involved in the murder of Kevin McGuigan, um, but I'm not. And he says, well, you know, bad painting and going your way, son. Like, I don't know what you want me to do. But uh, that was the, the reputation you see the Emerald Bar had for people who wouldn't know and maybe didn't have those kind of Republican connections. They would have thought, go to Dundalk, go to the Emerald Bar, you know, and somebody there, you'll find somebody who'll help you out or give you a hand. And that was the reputation that his businesses had. Um, and I suppose at one time, maybe that would have been his role as well, as, you know, taking in or finding somewhere to live for those people who crossed the border on the run during the, the troubles. Alison, the Oma bomb, as we speak, was almost 25 years ago. It's hard to believe because it's one of those things that nearly everyone remembers where they were. Well, I certainly do. Um, but I suppose anyone under 35, which doesn't. So, I mean, just to remind people, this was a real IRA bomb. It, it exploded really 
we didn't no one expected it at that period of time on the 15th of August in 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 1998 and it killed 29 people including a woman pregnant with twins it's almost incredible that death toll 29 people and hundreds more were injured yeah and I remember so well you know that happening at that time and the shock because you know the the Good Friday Agreement had happened in the April of 1998 we were only in the August and you know while it was obvious that there were certain um, factions of republicanism who were unhappy at the day and unhappy at the ceasefires and felt that they should have you know kept this armed conflict armed struggle going for longer and that turned out to be what became the real IRA but nobody expected something like that there was you know there has been numerous inquiries and ombudsman reports into the Oma bomb it was one of the biggest single losses of life in any atrocity of the troubles there was a completely inadequate warning given um, the people were actually sent in the wrong direction when they were trying to flee <coughs> towards the explosives rather than away from it and I don't think that um, anyone anywhere can't be horrified when they hear the details and heard the, the voices of the victims and the many lives that that, that ruined you know in, in terms of who lost their life, the age of the people who lost their lives, just the worst possible atrocity and any justification that the real IRA tried to retain for their, their sort of conflict or struggle after that I mean, Jesus, I mean there was no there was no defence and there was no coming back from it at, I, at that point I think many people thought rather naively as it turned out that that would be the end of armed re- republicanism I of thought it nature. was, I genuinely thought that it was so bad, it was so awful, the images were so terrible and I remember later on in, in sort of my, my journalist career and after the almost report someone had shown me a file that had the, the crime scene pictures in it and I couldn't even, I'll never repeat what I've seen but it was just horrendous like it was absolutely you know, bodies piled up in, and in c- rows The reason why we're talking about Colin Murphy is because in 2002 he became the only man to be convicted uh, in relation to the Oma bombing. He was facing 14 years in jail but but he won his appeal against his conviction in 2005. Can we start off, what what was he originally convicted for? Well he was, as you said, he was convicted of assisting the bombers. He was never thought to have been the bombers. He said his role was, it was said in court, was to provide the two mobile phones that were used by the bombers on the day. Um, that's why he got 14 years and a life sentence because that's what he was convicted of. He appealed that successfully and he um, there was a, a retrial ordered and then he was cleared of any involvement in the retrial in, I think it was February 2010. And I had obviously spoke to him not so long after that. I mean, obviously, to be cleared, that means that, that, that there wasn't sufficient evidence presented against you, but the original... It means his defence was able to... to uh, what evidence there was presented at the first trial, his defence was able to pull apart in the retrial. Um, and th- that was it, you know, as, as far as he was concerned. He had been cleared of any involvement in it. But then, obviously, the families raised money. I think they raised money from all sorts in all sorts of ways, and they took a civil case against four people who they said were believed to be the sort of masterminds behind it. To yourself, it's completely obvious the difference between a criminal case and a civil case. But just in case there anyone there's anyone out there listening to this podcast, perhaps not as as legally um, knowledgeable as yourself, or perhaps in a different jurisdiction. What's the difference? Well, a criminal case, the the burden of proof is higher. So to send someone to prison 
for something, especially something like the the Yuma bomb, the prosecution has to prove it beyond all reasonable doubt. And the penalty for being convicted in a criminal court is severe. It, it is usually a loss of your liberty and it's usually a very severe prison sentence. The civil court is a very different thing. Um, the civil court, the burden of proof is much lower. It's The burden of proof is um, on the, the grounds of probability. So let's say just to try and simplify it, if you can prove something 51% that on the grounds of possibility that's what happened, well then you can win a civil case. A civil case does not have to be beyond reasonable doubt, which is why the families, I think, were aware that they weren't going to get um, a conviction in the criminal court. And remember that the Oma bomb investigation was described as seriously flawed in what was a very damning police ombudsman report. Nuno Lone was a police ombudsman at the time. Um, Ronnie Flanagan had been the, the chief constable and he disputed the findings and said it does not represent a, a fair, he said a fair and rigorous investigation and he had actually sought legal action to consider trying to quash part of that. The civil case would have only, the only um, penalties in a civil case is financial, it's money. So you can remove assets from someone. So it's basically like suing somebody. You know, you're suing them for money, but then what it also means, and I suppose this is what the families were looking because they've never received a penny from the civil cases, is that then if someone is found guilty of something in a civil case, you can say that in public. So while we can't call someone a murderer who hasn't been convicted of a murderer, we can say was, you know, found to be liable for in a civil court. Um, and I think that was probably the driver between them because they wanted to name the people in public that they believe that they um, thought were responsible. I think we have sent a message to terrorists that, you know, from now on, you, you don't only need to worry about the authorities. The families, the families of those victims will come after you. It was never ever to do with money. It was to say that in a criminal court we didn't get what we want. So we went down the civil route and we fought and we fought. And in our heads and our minds, we know that their men are guilty for the massacre that they done that day in that street. So Colin Murphy had a criminal conviction and as you're saying it was ruled unsafe. There was, um, his defence alleged that there was um, a regular... Um, evidence that didn't make, you know, that, that, that the prosecution hadn't proved the the um, the source of this evidence properly, and then that was why it was challenged. There was other people who were um, formally charged to the court as well, but again, none of those those charges stuck. So Sean Hoy was one of the people who again, South Armagh he was charged with the, the murders, I think, sometime around May 2005. And in December 2007, he was found not guilty of 58 charges. They include the 29 murders um, of people in Oma. And clearing him for that case, and that was, you know, a case I remember covering. It was a very lengthy case, a very detailed case. Remember, all of these criminal cases take place in front of a non-jury court. We don't have juries in terrorist cases here. Um, the judge criticised the police and said that there was deliberate and calculated deception um, in terms of the evidence that was presented to the court. That was one of the first cases where we had the issue of DNA arise and low copy DNA and all sorts of other things that went along with that. So there was there's more scandal too that went on in the, the Oma bomb because there was allegation and counter allegation, there was allegations that there was collusion, there was allegations the police may have had some pre warning that something was going to happen, maybe not the exact details of what was was gonna happen. But then in two thousand and nine 
the civil trial, the civil case ruled that Mickey McEvitt, who we've already mentioned, Liam Campbell, Colin Murphy and Seamus Daly were liable for the bomb and he ordered them to pay $1.6 million in damages to the, the 12 relatives who took the case. And Colin Murphy and Seamus Daly, they tried to overturn this verdict in 2013, but they lost that. They did, that was unsuccessful, so that still stood. But as far as I'm aware to this day, that $1.6 has never been paid. No one's ever received any money in terms of um, of the Emma bomb. And none of them paid. Bankruptcy proceedings were then taken in the Republic. Um, if we go through the people who were in, in that um, case, Liam Campbell, as we know there was later extradition proceedings against Liam Campbell to try and extradite him into Lithuania over allegations that he was part of an operation to buy guns and bombs for the real IRA. Um, and Mickey McCavitt was eventually jailed for life for directing terrorism in the South. Um, he was diagnosed with cancer and he was eventually released from prison in uh, 2016. Um because on he was given a, a pardon on health grounds. The conviction, um, his life sentence was commuted then to allow him to be released to receive treatment. And he died in January 2021. One other thing we can say is that between April 1999 and October 2001, Colin Murphy transferred cash, land, companies and his pub and even his family home to other people. Yeah, so there was no assets there to go after, you know, and that's 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 the issue, and that's what happened. But I mean, there was a there was obviously we had a a development earlier on this year when randomly, completely out of the the blue, the Secretary of State Chris Seaton Harris announced that there was going to be an independent and statutory inquiry um, into the circumstances around in the Omer bomb. He said to establish the the preventability to see if there was actually a way it could have been stopped, and that was just in February of this year. So. Um, we have yet to get the full details of that or when that will take place. But obviously, as that takes place, it's not going to um, help the families get convictions because not only are these people dying, but, you know, the evidence was, the um, the investigation was, as Nilo Lone said, flawed. And so the evidence wasn't gathered. But that isn't the only atrocity that has been linked to the name of, of Colin Murphy because he was also has in the past been linked and although I asked him about that and he also denied it he has been linked to the Kings Mill massacre as well and the Kings Mill massacre was when a heavily armed gang in South Armagh in 1976 gunned down 11 Protestant workmen and only one person survived Alan Black yeah and that was you know the the attack was never claimed by the professional IRA they denied that sanctioned it but um, you know, uh, an inquest, a, a fresh inquest into that day. I think it's fairly been established that the IRA were involved in, in King's Mill and it was the South Armagh IRA who were involved in it. I suppose what we can say is that Colin Murphy, he was convicted of the 1998 Oma bomb, but later acquitted. He has died, but he had been found by a civil court to be liable for the Oma bombing on the balance of probability. Yeah, and what what happened then in his, his later years, because he wasn't a particularly old man, but he would totally had a chronic lung condition, which has been um, working, so he's, been, he's had for some time, he was diagnosed quite some time ago, and it was fatal, and there was no cure for it, and then he died um, on Tuesday morning of this week, as we sit here. And the be interesting to see is the funeral arrangements for him because as we have already said he has been linked throughout his life to four 
different Republican organizations. Alison Morris, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar. The sound design was by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from RTE, the BBC, UTV, and Sky. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.